Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This week on WealthTrack, we have an exclusive interview with five-star fund manager David Giroux. If you thought the stock market was risky before, wait until you hear his analysis. He's next on Consuelo Mack WealthTrack. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Clearbridge Investments, a Leg Mason company, Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective, Ku and Patricia Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences, and the Fairholm Foundation. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. How concerned are you about stock market risk? Have occasional 800-point drops in the Dow, corrections in various indices, presidential tweets and trade disputes had you reaching for your Pepto-Bismol, or Valium? Well, 2018 was not exactly a confidence builder. As you can see from this chart of the CBOE Volatility Index, VIX for short, that measures market volatility, there were definitely more dramatic swings last year than there were in 2017. But if you extend the time period to the last five years, 2018 doesn't look so out of control, especially compared to 2014 and 2015. During the great bull market that began in 2009, there were many rocky periods and several euphoric highs and nail-biting lows. That was to be expected. But those are not the risks that this week's guest is focusing on. He is looking at much more fundamental structural changes that are affecting the long-term future of specific companies, lots of them. He is David Giroux, Portfolio Manager and Chairman of the Advisory Committee of T. Rowe Price Capital Appreciation Fund, which is a Morningstar gold medalist and carries a five-star rating. Giroux was named Morningstar's Allocation and Alternatives Fund Manager of the Year in 2017, the second time he was so honored and has been nominated for the award five times. It is Giroux's role as head of investment strategy at T. Rowe Price that is the focus of much of today's conversation because he is leading research projects across T. Rowe Price's investment platform and asset classes. One of his major efforts is identifying secular risk in companies and avoiding companies that have it. What you might ask is secular risk. That is exactly the question I asked Giroux. When we think about secular risk, we're thinking about either a company or an industry as going through a change or a challenge that is not cyclical, not large numbers, but it is a structural change that is negatively impacting their business model, their company. That we think about the, if you think about what that company did the last 10 years from revenue, from margins, the multiple it was awarded, we would think the next 10 years, either revenue, margins, or some kind, or multiple that it gets in the marketplace will be lower in the next 10 years because of this structural change. And you're talking about profit margins when you're saying margins, right? Yes, profit margins, operating margins, yes. Right, so the earnings growth is, it's top line growth, it's earnings growth, and it's, and it's 
PE multiples, what the how the market values them. Yes, exactly. All of those are going to be lower, you think, in 10 Some years. Some combination of those will be lower. Why are you focusing on secular risk, trying to identify companies with secular risk? Why is that so important to you now? Sure. You know, if you go back when I became a, when I either joined your price in 1998, you know, there were very few companies that were really going through material secular risk. I mean, there were newspapers, Kodak, Polaroid. There was a very small number of the S&P 500. It was a very small portion of the S&P 500 earnings. Uh, even when I became a portfolio manager in 2006, you know, secular risk, secular challenges came up in less than 5% of my meetings, I would say. It's just, it was rare to have it come up in a, in a meeting. Huh. And today, uh, I would say it comes up in a third of all the meetings we do with management teams. We probably have, we meet the management team at tier probably 300 times a year, I do. And yeah, I'd say at least 100 of those meetings, secular risk is either an important theme of the meeting, uh, and so it's becoming a, and it's impacting multiples, it's impacting revenue growth, it's impacting margins, as we said, and trying to stay ahead of that mm -hmm. before the market does. Because once a company gets labeled with secular risk, we find their multiple compresses dramatically, even before the revenue and the margins sometimes show up, oh. if you will. So we, it's very important for us to be ahead of this as, as opposed to investing concurrently with the market. So, so what's so interesting is you said about, about a third of the companies that you talk to on a regular basis and if you look at the S&P 500, for instance, so uh, T. Rowe Price has identified what 30% of the companies in the S&P yes. 500 are facing uh, secular risk in in one form or, or another. Yes. And and that's versus, I think you said 20% a couple of years ago, or we we started identifying this at a, on a systematic basis uh, two years ago, and when we first did the analysis, it was about 20% of the, of the market had sort of secular risk. Mm -hmm. Today, as you said, it's 31% of the S&P 500 of secular risk. It's actually a greater share of S&P 500 earnings, about 36% of the S&P wow. 500. And I, my, my sense is, you know, when I do the analysis two years in the future, it'll be a larger number. There's probably three or four other industries we're doing a lot of due diligence uh, on that make up another, you know, five or 10% of the market that could potentially be added to that bucket, if you will. So what's happening? <laughs> I mean, why, why are so many companies, so many more companies, being, uh, you know, kind of their businesses are almost being attacked yes. by changes in their industries that, uh, that is going to result in their having lower growth in these very important metrics uh, 10 years from now? Yeah, I, I think, I think it's, it's, a, it's a culmination of a lot of things. Uh, clearly, it's Amazon, Google, um, Netflix are all impacting multiple different sectors, right? right? Whether it be cable networks, cable systems, grocery stores, tech hardware, tech software in some cases. You've seen that impact. Uh, and and those, are, those are big companies. But, you know, it's even uh, it's, it's, it's evolving to things like energy, if you will. Think about what an energy major, think about Exxon, Chevron, you know. Most of their value of their company uh, is in sort of deep water assets. Mm -hmm. The evolution of shale technology uh, really, you know, produce, you know, makes that deep water assets they have much less valuable. So these are technological changes that you're talking about. It can, so. it can be a regulatory change, yeah. it can be a change in uh, customer attitudes. Um, can you it, give us give us some other examples? And I know that you've sure. uh, that you've owned Amazon for a long time in the T. Rowe Price yes. Capital Appreciation Fund. Yes. Um, so Amazon is kind of the kind of the poster child for yes. disruption and disintermediation. They call it. They are. They are. Right. And you think you know, you know, multiple years ago we we talked all about you know the impact that it has on retail, right? Yes. Uh, you know, today we talk about the impact it has on grocery stores, uh, post the Whole Foods acquisition. 
uh, three or four years ago, we started talking about the impact on tech hardware from AWS. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know, that now they're kind of disrupting the advertising market to a certain extent as well. Uh, so you're seeing, you know, and, you know, the other area that people don't really think a lot about, but is uh, ground transportation. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to be doing a lot more that by themselves. Uh, as opposed to using FedEx or UPS. Or, oh, right, of course, yeah. So that, those companies can be impacted by that as well. So probably Amazon probably impacts more companies than any other mm -hmm. uh, company out there, if you will. But Google's impacting companies. Google probably will be a, a huge impactor you know, 10 years in the future as they're really the leaders on autonomous driving, mm -hmm. uh, as well as sort of AI and machine learning. Uh, those two things have a very big disruptive impact on the economy, different sectors, large sectors. So what t Price is trying to do is, is that, that you're, you, you tell us what the process is. You're looking at 700 companies yes. kind of on a pretty regular basis, every quarter, every six months, yes, to we, see what changes, who's being affected by secular changes. That's, that's exactly right, that's exactly right. So uh, you know, one really nice thing about t Price is we invest at the private company level, all right. the way up to the largest companies in the world. Mm -hmm. And we spent a lot of time with sort of our small cap analysts to try to identify some of these disruptive companies uh, and what they could, the impact they could have either in the short term as well as the long term on some of these mid cap or larger cap companies. Uh, so we're spending a lot of time on that. So as a lot of the technological change, we just talked about Google and Amazon, yes. for instance, but is a lot of the technological change coming from smaller companies and from the, from the you know, privately owned companies at it's this coming, point? It's coming from everywhere. It is? It's, it's coming okay. from everywhere, if you will, I, I would say. And, but there are private companies, you know, a lot of companies, I would say, in the uh, software industry that are very disruptive mm -hmm. to existing software companies. And so uh, you know, are a lot of these companies going to be taken over the, the, the disruptive privately held companies, are a lot of them going to be bought out by some of these big players? Companies that are fearful of disruption are trying to buy some of the disruptors, if you will. Mm -hmm. I, I think that. How does that work? Do, I mean, does it work? It usually doesn't work. Okay. There's a cultural issue. Um, that, that's, that's usually a challenge. It probably the, you know, I, I always think that one of the big long-term trends in packaged food companies is sort of move to organics, if you will. Mm -hmm. And what you've seen time and time again where some of these companies that have been disrupted, whether it be General Mills, Campbell, Campbell's. they reach for growth because they understand their core business is under pressure and they reach for companies that are growing and it doesn't turn out well. It goes back to one of the, one of the challenges with companies that have secular risk um, is their management teams. I think their boards sometimes make uneconomic investment decisions or capital allocation decisions because mm -hmm. they're so worried about the future of the company they reach for growth and it usually doesn't generate a good return and generates, actually generates sometimes negative returns. So are there characteristics, common characteristics of companies that are disruptors, for instance? Interesting. Um, no, 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 I, I think, oh. I, 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 you know, it's, it's really companies that, that are adapting to, who are embracing technology, mm -hmm. I would say, uh, companies that are that have strong cash flows in their existing business that they can invest in new markets, new opportunities, if you will. Um, I, I don't. I don't think there's any common characters. There yeah. are. I would say there are. You know, maybe the one I would say is, you know, founder. The, mm -hmm. you, know, you think. Yeah. You think about Amazon. It's the founder. Uh, Google. The founder is still very, very involved. Uh, I think you would think about uh, even in things like Shale, where an EOG or a Concho. You know, really the founders of those companies. Uh, really started that kind of evolution to, to you know, attacking shale, getting the cost curve lower on shale. 
One of the interesting things that, uh, that, that you've told me in a previous conversation was that, that once a company kind of is in secular decline or is at secular risk, it's, it is hard for them to turn around, but there are some exceptions. Some big exceptions. Right. And so, um, I mean, you had mentioned to me Apple, for instance, uh, Microsoft. Yeah, I think Apple's probably the, the poster child. Again, I, I mentioned a couple of companies when I joined Tiro that were facing secular risk. But you go back to 1998, 1999, Apple was considered dead. Right. There was a point in time where Apple was trading for a slight premium to the cash on its balance sheet. They thought it was really a dying business, right? And they really reinvented themselves first with the iPod, and then eventually with the iPhone. With the and of course, the founder, Steve Jobs, came back. Exactly. Right. And it, but the nice thing about Apple at the time was they didn't have a, they didn't have a giant legacy business, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so it wasn't like they had ten billion dollars of profits. They had to invent something to, to build. They had, they had a small profit pool, right? Or very, they were very marginally profitable. So a small iPod, if you will, and then, I, then in the iPhone and the iPad, those things really were, were able to dwarf the size of their legacy business. The mm -hmm. core PC business really has grown, but it hasn't grown dramatically. No. Um, you know, or, or a, uh, you know, company like Microsoft, mm -hmm. and, you know, there's, you know, a change in leadership there, a change in investment priorities. There were, and there were, there were four or five years there where Microsoft didn't grow earnings at all. Right. And there was a, there was a view that they you know they had a, they were an on premise company, and on premise was going away. And really, they've been able to shift their business by making pretty aggressive investments into Azure, and building a business that is really number two uh, in a two maybe three player market within cloud computing, as well as taking their core business, which is again it's an on premise solution, really taking that to the cloud with a core Windows Office uh, platform. Another disruptor that, that you and I have talked about in the past is Netflix, yes. for instance. Yes. I mean, I, if you think about you know, the cable systems and cable networks, those were two great businesses not long ago. Mm -hmm. you know, the cable networks business you know, used to be able to, you, know, you got 7% kind of fee growth every year. Right. You, were, you were able to, your customer growth was zero to one. You had advertising with your face, it was within your favor, and you had, you know, Buy back, buying back stock, margin expansion. They were all legitimate double-digit growers year in and year out. Right. Great businesses. And then all of a sudden, you know, Netflix came around and the level of content they were spending made people say, I don't need to have a, I don't need to watch these channels and have all this advertising. Mm -hmm. And I can uh, watch Netflix and drop my drop my cable, if you will. And cut all the cord. Cut the cord. And you've seen companies that were great stocks for a long time, the Viacoms, the Discoveries. You know, come under a lot of pressure on a, over over a multi-year period of time, uh, and it's also impacting cable systems, right? Again, an, an, another great company, you know, Comcast Charter, where a good chunk of their business still comes from uh, cable, the, uh, the the cable portion of the bill, if you mm -hmm. will, the subscription the subscription side of, the, of mm -hmm. the bill, and that's under some pressure, if you will. Uh, and again, also it's, it's it's interesting, you know, like a company like Comcast goes out and, and you know makes a a little bit of a crazy bid for both the Fox assets and mm -hmm. the Sky, Sky, Sky assets. One, the Sky assets. Um, and it's, I think it's an example of a company like, our business is being disrupted. We've got to do something to diversify. Right. And that was probably not the right decision for shareholders. You mentioned secular risk uh, regulation being one of them. So when you look at Amazon and Google, for instance, yes. and the regulatory scrutiny that they're coming under, I yes. mean, could they be at secular risk at some point? I mean, what would it take? I think to, ev 
Everybody could be a risk for secular risk at, at some point. Okay. I, would, I would say that. I think that's probably a bigger challenge for something like a Facebook, per se, mm -hmm. uh, than probably a Google or a uh, Amazon. Right. And, um, and uh, as far as the, I'm, I'm just thinking of the S&P 500, per se. Yes. You said, you know, 36% of the companies um, facing secular risk in their earnings growth yeah. over the next 10 years. Of course, the, the largest index funds are yes. in the S&P 500. Yes. It just strikes me as then why would I want to buy an index fund if yes. that larger and growing proportion is at risk? I think it's a great point. It's something that we spent a lot of time at Tiro thinking about. And again, I think it's going to be a very, very powerful uh, tailwind for active management. Not all active management, but I think good active management, if you will. And I would define... The, you mean the disruption that's going on in in in, well, tech, in, in industries yes, is going to be, be a, a tailwind for active managers who can pick and choose versus... Absolutely. Yeah. Who are willing to take a little bit longer time, longer term perspective, if you will, like T-Row. And who, who can say, I, I'm pretty confident in the next five or ten years, IBM or Macy's will be a smaller company. I, I'm not going to create value for my shareholders mm -hmm. by owning those stocks. Now... I think sometimes when we talk about active versus passive, mm. we, you know, there's good active management, there's bad active management. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, bad active management are people who hug indexes, who have high fees, who have high turnover. Another uh, a secular risk that you identified with me in another interview was okay. actually disinflation and deflation. Yes. I would say we, we don't actually incorporate that into our secularist bucket today. Okay. But it's something that we spend a lot of time on. Uh, and again, I think uh, you know, machine learning, AI, some of the de disinflation we are seeing uh, from technology companies is going to have a profound effect over the next five or ten years. Uh, we talked about autonomous driving earlier, uh, the impact that's going to have on the service sector, right. on, service, on service sector employment uh, is going to be, I think it's going to be a massive kind of disinflationary uh, trend. Uh, you know, for, for, your, for your listeners tonight, I would tell them, you know, go to your go to your search bar and type in Google phone making reservations, and you know there there's technology today where if you want to make a haircut appointment, mm -hmm. you can tell your phone make a haircut appointment, and that phone can actually make a phone call to a uh, to a salon, and they will they will negotiate a time and a, and uh, for you to do without you having to do that. It's, right. just the, it's just the tip of the iceberg. But when you're talking about artificial intelligence and robotics and everything else, it's also, it's not only, it's going to be very disruptive. It's going to be, you know, great for certain sectors and for certain consumers, but it's also going to be yes. incredibly disruptive as far as the job market's concerned and industries. Yes. and. Yes, I think, I think in five and ten years, five, ten years, we are going to see a pretty dramatic change, I think. I think, you know, by 2030, I think we'll see autonomous cars, uh, be the majority of potentially the majority of sales uh, in the marketplace. I think again, some of these machine learning AI technologies, how that's going to disrupt anybody who interacts uh, with other humans, if you will, in a service mm -hmm. in a service capability. That's going to be I think being disrupted as well. Now again, this, these are some n maybe negative things for parts of the economy, but they're really amazing things from from a from a light, you know, quality of life perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Being able to drive a car without risk of injury, if you will, be able to sleep in the car, do work in the car, and, you know, uh, consume media in the car. I think it's going to be a pretty powerful uh, you know, positive trend, if you will. 
And is there a way to invest in this now, or is it just too early? I mean, when you were just saying that Google yes. is going to be very much a part of the autonomous uh, vehicle yes. business, uh, we think. Who knows? Maybe you know one of the automakers will as well. No, I think I think Google is probably the best way to play that. Uh -huh. and they are the leader with uh, their Waymo subsidiary. I think the other way you can think about that is, you know, think about what happened. We moved from a flip phone to the iPhone, if you will, mm -hmm. and how powerful a trend that was. Right. I think we're going to have a similar thing that happens once cars become not only level four autonomous, but even level three and level two autonomous. The quality of the experience for a driver just changes dramatically in that situation where you don't have to, you don't, you don't have to pay attention as much or you can take your hands off the wheel at certain periods of time. I think it's going to be a, it could drive incremental demand for auto sales. Also, again, we talked about autonomous cars or electric vehicles. What that really means is a lot more content, a lot more safety content, a lot more sensors, a lot more semiconductors. Companies like Texas Instruments, Maxim, uh, T Connectivity are all going to be beneficiaries of this uh, autonomous vehicles, um, the, the, the electronification of the cars. They're all huge benefits. Lear would be another company that would be benefit from that trend. Let me ask you to put on your asset allocation hat sure. because I, I know in the T. Rowe Price Capital Appreciation Fund, you know, you were a Morningstar manager of the year twice in the asset allocation category. Mm -hmm. So what kind of asset allocation do you have now in the Capital Appreciation Fund? I, I would say uh, that maybe the one change from an asset allocation perspective is, you know, if we talked last time, you know, I told you I really like utilities. Yes. And I, and I still like utilities. And they've done really well. And they've done really well. Yes. So we've taken our utility overweight from 1,300 basis points overweight utilities to basically like more like eight to 900 basis points overweight utilities. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've we still feel really good about that on a 10-year perspective. Um, you know, I think there's, you know, the, the long-term, that is an area that is benefited from secular change as renewables, wind, solar, the price points come down, uh, it, it lowers customer bills, it drives rate-based growth up. It's just a very positive environment for the, for the environment. Um, it's a win-win for everybody. So utilities still strike me on a long-term basis as being too cheap. I think actually I would actually over the next five years, I would bet that utilities grow faster than the market over the next five years on earnings, just because we're probably in a recession and utilities will still do their five, six, seven percent EPS growth with a 3% dividend yields. Uh, whereas the market will probably have a, a period of time where earnings go down. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, as I said the last time you were here, was the utility sector, yes. and it does, has done very well. So what would you recommend for a long-term diversified portfolio now? Okay. Again, if you had a 10-year view, I'd still buy utilities. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I'd say is if you had a shorter-term view, this is a little bit more of a high-risk, high-return. Uh, but I think we actually like GE a lot right here. GE, we really? like GE a lot. I used to cover GE as an analyst. Uh, yeah, they've had a lot of challenges, but when I look at it, we, we do my, we, we do our, our 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 work on it. You know, we think three or four years out, this should be a twenty dollars stock. What's uh, left at GE? What's left at GE is is they have a, an amazing avionics business, or, uh, air, or avionics and aerospace business. Mm -hmm. They have a great healthcare business. They have a power business that has really struggled and actually has some secular challenges, big secular challenges. But we believe uh, they're losing too much on the OEM side of the business, and that can get better. We have a new CEO uh, who created, who turned around, you know, dozens of companies when he was at Danaher in Larry Culp's, and when I have a, you know, used to be on T. Rowe Price's board, mm -hmm. uh, an, amaz oh. an amazing, amazing CEO. I think we have a lot of confidence in him. 
And I think they're, they have a lot of liquidity. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty right now, uh, but I think there's, there's good, op, good value in GE today. High risk, high return. You know, I think that's a stock that could be, you know, $20 in a couple of years. Probably the most upside of any stock I have in my portfolio today. So interesting. David Drew, thank you so much for coming. Oh, it's my pleasure. On WealthTrack again. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. I don't know about you, but I find myself being constantly distracted by emails and various other work-related tasks that seem to eat away at my day. The only time I get any serious focus time is at night when everyone else leaves the office and I can concentrate without interruption. Not the best system for my health or home life. Is there a better solution? Yes, according to David Giroux, and his recommendation is this week's action point. It is read the book Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World by Cal Newport. Deep work is just that, deep, concentrated focus on a topic without interruption for four hours at a crack. Newport, a computer science professor at Georgetown, has several recommendations to unplug from our smartphones, email, social media, and other time-devouring distractions to enable us to, quote, wring every last drop of value out of your current intellectual capacity. Drew and some colleagues at T. Rowe Price have put Deep Work's suggestions into practice, and he says they have made him and them generate better quality work and become more productive. High praise indeed from a two-time Morningstar Money Manager of the Year. Well, next week we will concentrate on making a difference while making money with two experts in socially responsible investing, Glenn Mead's Laura LaRosa and U.S. SIF's Lisa Wall. In this week's extra feature, my extended conversation with David Giroux about the impact deep work has had on him and his colleagues is available on WealthTrack.com. And for those of you who haven't unplugged, please reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for watching. Have a super weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.